Good morning. My guest this morning is David Lammy. David is a Member of Parliament for Tottenham and is the Shadow Secretary of State for Justice and Shadow Lord Chancellor. He's been a Labour MP since 2000 and served as Minister in Governments under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, with his final role being Minister of State for Universities. David grew up in Tottenham, attended a local primary school, then won a choral scholarship, and then went on to study law at the University of London and was the first Black Briton to attend the Harvard Law School, where he got his master's. He was called to the bar and practiced as a lawyer in both California and with the London firm DJ Freeman. Our paths first crossed when, as a newly elected Labour MP in about 1998, I was asked to meet a talented young lawyer who was interested in developing a career as an elected Labour politician. I was supposed to give this young person some advice, but it was quite clear to me when I met David that he was a far more talented politician than I would ever be. In 2000, he was selected to replace the late and much missed Bernie Grant, the MP for Tottenham, who died. David won the seat and has been a substantial presence in the House of Commons ever since, canvassing for, for social justice, equality of opportunity, and all good stuff. David, welcome to the Legal Glass Ceilings podcast. Thank you very much, David. I can't say how fantastic it is. <laughs> 22 years later, and I'll touch on that, uh, I'm sure, in the questions. Um, to be doing this podcast on this subject. It's fantastic. Well, thanks very much for making the time. When you grew up in Tottenham, did you have any role models, friends, family, people you knew who were lawyers and could say, this is what you do as a lawyer and this is the profession that you might want to go into? No. It's very simple. No is the answer. I grew up in the 70s and 80s in very much the sort of inner city of London. It was a tough time in many ways, tough time because um, racism was still rife, unfortunately. No role models really on television, uh, other than a few athletes like Daley Thompson or Tessa Sanderson. Still the era of Alf Garnett, Jim Davison, um, making jokes, black people being figures of fun. Um, and young second generation black immigrants running into considerable problems with the police. And the, you know, they would, uh, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, we weren't really, really poor. We didn't have a lot of money. There, there, there certainly weren't any role models. And there was no sense, really, that I could be who I wanted to be. You know, that business of um, fashioning on a, on, a, on, on a dream and then sort of knowing how to get there. And the only people that were wearing suits, really, to go to work or, to, or were wearing suits were all usually on their way to court uh, as, as a defendant um, or on their way to church. So uh, very, very simply, they just weren't the role models and there certainly weren't any lawyers at all. But you were a, a call scholar, you were a singer, and that must have opened up all sorts of so I did get this. I did get this break, and the break happened when I was eleven. Um, uh, it was the era of Alid Jones getting to the charts with "Walking in the Air." Um, people were talking about choir boys. I used to sing. I used to go to church with my mother, and I got this break to be a choral scholar in Peterborough Cathedral, and that did, for the first time, open up possibilities. It opened up a world to me, which is a Middle England world. It was a pastoral Christian environment. Again, it wasn't always easy. I was the only black kid at the school. And so there was a lot of prejudice and racism, but it did open up a world. And I first encountered my first lawyer, two lawyers, um, Adrian Christman, Christmas, 
at a law firm called uh, Adrian Christmas in Peterborough Cathedral Cloisters and Jonathan who worked with him and I uh, uh, aged about 15 16 I started to spend the sort of afternoon you were meant to be spending on sports or something in their offices being exposed to them as lawyers because I'd been I sort of expressed a desire to do I mean I, I, I was useless I mean I would sort of sometimes fall asleep um, you know, in the way that kids can uh, in suddenly stressful environments make useless cups of tea photocopy things badly but my god I thank those men so much it almost makes me emotional um, because they were so wonderful to me and let, let me come back <laughs> again and again and again. Um, and we're very, very helpful in, in sort of nudging me. Um, I'm, I'm not sure they thought that I would be a terribly successful lawyer. You'd have to ask them, but they were, they were really, really wonderful. But you got this break into seeing this environment, being a lawyer, because you had another skill, another talent, which was music. That's and right. You hadn't have had that music talent is it right you never would have necessarily got the break to even glance inside a law? I think I might out? have seen law, but it would have been, unfortunately, from the end of getting into trouble with the law. I, and I say that very, very honestly. Some people ask me what my greatest fear was growing up, and it was going to prison because so many of the young black kids in Tottenham at that time were somehow getting scooped up and ending up in prison. So it, it's absolutely the case that the the... The excellence that I found in music took me into an environment, as I say, it was a pastoral environment, uh, and that environment gave me a sense of ambition. I don't, I, I, you know, I was not, I was, I was always sort of average at school, but I did have this real burning ambition, and that started to bring me into contact with people. And then I, the thing I would say is that I was a bit precocious as a person. And that I, I, I started to learn pretty quickly that I could ask for help and, and, and that, and I wasn't, didn't have so much pride that I couldn't ask people for help. And I always say what I found, my experience is that I, I found many, many people over the years, of which David, you are one, who, who were very willing to give help. If you asked, actually, and they never looked like you. I mean, they, these are not folks that look like me, uh, uh, but they were very, very willing to give help. And so I, I always say, get over yourself, actually. Don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself. Don't be afraid to be that useless. I was useless going to that law firm. I, I was, I was, I, I didn't know anything. I wanted, later I wanted to go into politics, but I was certainly not immersed in the Labour tribe. I mean, I wasn't one of these kids that had been delivering leaflets since they were sort of five and parents who were MPs or in the unions or anything like that. So you, you make all these mistakes and it's not pretty often making mistakes with people that you're asking for help. But in a way, if you just persist in time, you leave that behind you. You move to a different law firm or a different environment you leave that yeah. behind you and it all comes good yeah that's really interesting because <laughs> in a completely different context i when i go I, I my wife and i often go cycling and we go cycling abroad for a couple of months at a time and we always make a rule of of prejudicing ourselves to accept offers of help to ask people and, and, but it's such a British reluctance to offer, to ask for help, because we're terrified we're going to look like a fool. We're terrified that we, and in fact, what you're saying is really interesting that if you don't know, ask, 
and don't be afraid of what the, the response is because almost all the time people will actually help yeah, but we will. restrain ourselves because we don't have the confidence to ask they will and people do understand that environments like law you have to you know it, unfortunately it's still the case that networks matter they do understand that and therefore they're then they're, they're they're willing to give you there's a side of law in a lot of countries where it's a sort of it's a bit like a gentleman's club now that's got some huge downsides huge downsides yeah. for which you and i david in politics want to completely dismantle in so many ways however just to focus on the upsides it means that people within law are quite networked they do yeah. know other lawyers and know other in other towns and other cities and and they've been there before and they and so it's actually strangely an environment in which people are very used to sort of putting their that you know what they know at, at, at your disposal and assisting they're sort of keen on that and they're and and broadly speaking even though law is still i'm afraid i've got to say this a bit too male pale and stale um um it, actually lawyers as a breed do like diversity strangely they do they do like they do understand a breadth of opinion and range and different points of view uh, on the whole so again they're not averse to sort of helping you and they usually have one friend or so and so that they could I mean in fact it, it, I seem to recall David it was Cherie Blair that sent me in in your direction is my recollection and and when I first met Cherie Blair true. yeah when I first met Cherie Blair I remember her saying to me oh, you know you I wasn't an MP at that stage you've come a long way from Tottenham she said to me and I said to her and you've come a long way from Liverpool <laughs> we've been friends ever yeah, exactly. since <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know. so just just about that journey a little bit you went to SOAS to study law from Peterborough and then went to Harford what was it like going to that great bastion of legal learning but also white privilege in Harvard before we come to that it is important for me to say, look, so I'd, I'd landed on law at school. I Some teachers had tried to put me off. They knew I wanted to be a barrister. They didn't think I had the intellect to be a barrister. And they uh, associated when I was saying to them in school at 16, 15, that I want to be a barrister, that with being, you know, posh and august and didn't couldn't picture me there because at that stage in our history, there just wasn't people like me at, at the bar. And I had been... I didn't quite get the A-levels that I wanted. I, you know, I'd set my heart on Cambridge, but didn't quite work out. And basically I ended up again, you know, some of the issues in our country at that time, but I think still exists today. You know, you do get young black kids with tremendous talent, sometimes underachieving for a whole range of reasons, some yep. to do with institutional yep. racism, some to do with their own confidence and the careers they're getting. Anyway, I ended up headed for Nottingham Trent now, I'd been around law by that stage enough, you know, first in Peterborough, Adrian Christmas, and then I met someone called Alex Carter-Silk, who's still a practicing solicitor, very good IP solicitor, who also assisted me. I'd begun to realise that the kinds of university you went to and stuff really mattered. Now, this may be brutally unfair to Nottingham Trent, which is a wonderful university, and I've done lots of things with 
Nottingham Trent over the years. And I had a, two very, very, very good friends of mine go to Nottingham Trent. But I decided at that time that as a young black man, going to Nottingham Trent would put me at a disadvantage of becoming a barrister. And I think that was fair because the bar at that stage was, you know, if you didn't go to Oxford, you, Oxbridge, it was tough, really. And, and being black as well, there'd be all sorts of expectations of what you could or couldn't do, what James you would end up, all the rest of it. And so I really, really pushed and I ended up getting into SOAS through clearing. And that was a better environment for me, I think, at that stage in my life. It was better because it was ethnically diverse, because they had a different way of approaching the curriculum. They wanted to look beyond the Eurocentric canon. It meant for me returning from Peterborough to London. Uh, In London, it was a very fantastic time to be a student you know it was the time of the Guildford Four the Birmingham Six the Tottenham Three people like Helena Kennedy Mike Mansfield making a name for themselves the end of Margaret Thatcher it was a very exciting time both socially and legally and SOAS was a very left-wing environment so that was good for me and it has a good reputation globally that's how I got into Harvard. I got into Harvard because at that stage, there were some black kids taking the Inns of Court School of Law to court because it was routinely failing black pupils. And they said that there was institutional racism. They were just ahead of me. I was really worried that I would apply there and not get in. I applied there, did get in um, and did just about pass. But I, I, I applied to Harvard as a plan B. And there was a show on TV called L.A. Law at the time. There was a black lawyer in it. I wanted to be him. And that's why I sent this application off to Harvard. It wasn't for any other reason. And I got in and they said to me, you'd be the first black Briton to come. We really want you to come. It's going to cost you £45,000. I didn't have £45,000. I had to beg, borrow, steal. Wonderful lawyers, Jewish lawyers at DJ Freeman helped me with the money to go. And others, another wonderful lawyer called Jonathan Stone helped me with the money to go. And, and and that's how it came about. And actually at Harvard, I did not find, what I did find was huge talent and intellect and ability. I, it, it put me in an extremely confident place. It was an incredibly exciting place to be. I did not find it a bastion of privilege, quite the opposite, doing a master's there, because actually what I found was it was one of the most diverse places I, I, I met, you know, African-Americans, Native Americans, Um, progressive, uh, all bright, but actually in in some ways it was more diverse than SOAS. And and actually some of the work I've done in politics about entry into Oxford and Cambridge has been because of that Harvard experience. And strangely, because actually I found it to be one of the most diverse academic environments uh, in which which you could be. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's really interesting for all sorts of reasons. And first of all, onto SOAS, I think you're absolutely right, because that was the days before when, for example, all our pupillage applications, we don't see the university people are going to now, but they used to then. Yes. Uh, we don't see people's names, yes. because again, that, that, that's, that, these are all steps in the right direction, yes. Yes. but that wasn't the case then. Yes. Um, and although the world is different, the prejudice works its way through still in different ways. Yes. I don't think we've. I don't think things like removing the names of universities or removing names of applications re- removes it. It helps. It's not it's, sufficient. I'm, it's I'm not sufficient. It's, not, it's 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 not it's not sufficient because of course, um, 
you know, some of this is about what you've done extracurricularly, and, and, and often you find that, you know, wealthier kids can put down all sorts to Duke of Edinburgh this, and I climbed Mount Everest this, and I worked at a cap here in India on this, and all this sort of stuff, and I've done this many pupilage and that many pupilage, and a poor old working class student hasn't got any of that. Uh, or, or you say you've got caring responsibilities, you're way too self-conscious to put that down. Uh, or say you translate for your parents, you've got English as a foreign language, you're way too yeah. self-conscious to put that down. And all, all of that's fantastic, in fact, but, but no one ever says to you that that's that's great stuff to say um that mum's in a wheelchair and you're a carer for her as well as getting um three a stars at a level but so this stuff doesn't doesn't always show up in the way that it that it that it should and in fact you know the truth is that when i became a lawyer i had a and and a young politician there was a massive massive sense of imposter syndrome suddenly you're there and oh my god i'm way out of my depth i'm no good i what am I doing here? I remember going for pupillage interviews over and over and just getting knocked back. And I remember sitting in Three Sergeants Inn, which is a, uh, at the time a terribly uh, distinguished set of chambers, uh, the best for a chambers doing um, medical ethics, negligence sort of work um, in the country at that time, working on very famous cases like the Tony Bland case and Shipman, all sorts of all sorts of fantastic work and. And I remember sitting there, it must have been my sixth, seventh interview. Oh, these boys walked in and they had blonde hair and they had pinstripe suits. And I just thought, oh, you know, okay. It's not gonna work. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, you know, I crawled out of bed. It was a Saturday morning. You know, I, I was pretty weary and depressed by that point. And I, and I really thought, I don't know if I can say this on, on but I thought, fuck it, basically, I'm not going to get this. And so I really went for it. <laughs> He really went for it in the interview. I had been, I'd lied about my age. And at those days, there was the free representation unit and you had to be a little bit older than you were. And I, I'd lied about my age and I was doing these cases for the free representation unit, gaining a lot in my confidence. And I talked about that. I talk, it, it happened that some of those cases had sort of um, quasi uh, medical aspects to them and negligence aspects to them. And being in front of the, um, I did a lot of work in front of the, um, criminal injuries compensation what was then the criminal injuries compensation board and and anyway I succeeded I got through in the interview and ended up doing pupillage with Mary O'Rourke QC Adrian Hopkins QC uh, again they looked they looked out for me and you know and the point is the point yeah. is uh, I, I I had a sense of imposter syndrome but uh, but again I just sort of went for it and got it. You put it real. I mean, I, I'm going to be in the Court of Appeal on Thursday, and I know that I'll have that sense of imposter syndrome when I stand up in the Court of Appeal. Um, and, you know, I, countless times I've said, it doesn't matter how often you stand up in the Court of Appeal, you still feel like someone's going to find you out. Um, but when you're a pupil, you don't realise that, that people you look up to, people yeah. with QCs, might have that. Yes. Um, yes. Um, but, you know, Ma Mary... And Adrian, fantastic pupil, pupil masters, mistresses. Um, yeah. But you actually, you decided not to stay at the bar. Why well, pupillage didn't all go well for me. I, you know, I, I, I think that I'm actually a big fan of doing the stuff a little bit later than we do it. The pipeline of out of university into pupillage wasn't great for me. Not, I wasn't, I just wasn't there. I don't think emotionally, really, psychologically. The, the, the little missteps were unforgiving I think I mean I think I mean pupillage is a year-long interview 
And so I didn't get tenancy. I bounced around a bit, went to Harvard, came back. Uh, DJ Freeman remained a constant for me. I was very grateful for that law firm for being a constant for me, being very supportive, both in getting me to Harvard, but also taking me back. And, and strangely being a sort of pastoral environment for me, yeah. the lawyers yeah. being a pastoral environment for me. I did work, of course, in, 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 in America as well, but I guess I started, now this is the other difficult side of law and it's got worse, in fact. Um, and I've got to share my prejudices with you. One, I think that there are probably too many young people um, qualifying as solicitors and qualifying as as barristers, I, I, and I, I'm not convinced about that myself. There's a debate about that in the legal community that the training is good, but I'm, I, I, I'm. There's a little bit I think of setting people up, sometimes not to succeed. Only, think, there's only there's only so many takeoff slots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and second, there's an awful lot of planes waiting on the runway. Absolutely, and the and the and I unfortunately for minorities. That can be a real issue, a real issue. And I was caught up in that to some extent uh, a bit. Wherever you've been, however good you are, that can be a real challenge. And then I think the other tough bit, and this affects everybody, everybody, is actually law has become less and less an area where you're able to say, I want to do this area of law. The training contracts you get, the pupillage you get is, is, is slightly arbitrary. You grab what you can get because it's so competitive. And the truth is, if I were becoming a lawyer today, David, I would be going into family law. I would be going into employment law, particularly family. I mean, I, you know, one of my children is adopted. I, that's the area of law I would be wanting to make a name for that would really inspire and motivate me. But I sort of ended up being a sort of general common law litigator, really. And that, that, uh, and some of those cases were really sort of had the profit motive at the end of them, helping people in businesses and things like that. And, um, that in the end did not fire me up and propelled me into politics where I found those why questions that sometimes lawyers ask, you know, why is this young person in prison? Why has this company gone bankrupt? You're looking at these slightly bigger questions than the individual case. And that motivated me and fired me up hugely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the why does the law set the boundary between competing interests in this way at this point yes. when that's plainly wrong and it should be set in another place? And shifting that boundary is the job of politicians. It's not the job of those of us who are back at the coalface working. But you're right about family law. I mean, I, I sit in the family division as a deputy judge and I'm not a family practitioner. I do medical cases mostly, but it is fascinating. And it's, it's real life. It's all shades of life coming before the court. It's fascinating. Absolutely. And it's what really matters to people. Yes. You can't yes. get a checkbook out and solve yes. it. Yes. So, I mean, I'm, I've got, I'm hugely rewarded by what I do as a job. It's like drinking from a hose pipe. I definitely have just job satisfaction in spades. But as you just said that you're a jeopardy judge in a family court, there was a bit of me, oh, I'd like to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until it comes, until time comes when you make a decision and then it can be really difficult. Yeah, but yeah. David, what would you say to a determined and talented youngster of any, of any background, but in particular back, the type of background that you came from, what do you have to do to work out if the law is a career for you? 
Oh, you see, I was quite single minded. As I said, I was quite ambitious. Um, I do think you've got to be able to ask people for help. Definitely got to be able to ask people for help. You've got to search people out. I, I had lots of legal experience. You know, I found myself wanting constantly to to experience different areas of law. I was constantly applying for summer jobs, work programs. Some of this is a bit more organized now than it was in those days. I remember getting a fantastic break with some lawyers, Alistair Burt and Pat Burge, who were at the Times newspaper, International um, Newspaper International, really preeminent lawyers in the yeah. area of libel and defamation and copyright. And I rung up all the newspapers I decided I wanted to be a defamation lawyer or something and and they all said no um and then and they got back and said yeah okay we can only pay you 50 quid a day oh it was a huge amount of money and I and and they were wonderful to me see you I I I really encourage a bit of chutzpah you know and and just constantly being at it being in people's faces asking for advice sort of worked for me really going for it exposing yourself to different legal environments because as i said unfortunately it's got more competitive not less and the business of the area of law you're in really plays a role in how fulfilled you'll be in the law the law in the end reflects the whole of human life and so it is important if you can to struggle and push to arrive in an area of law where you are motivated don't be too a lot of people think it's all about making money my experience is you'll you'll be comfortable actually at varying degrees but um, the most important thing is to get the job satisfaction from what you do and therefore it's really experience and a bit of self-knowledge that helps you with that something else i want to ask you on that because if you're constantly putting yourself out asking questions asking for help trying things a lot of the time you're going to get knocked back one of the things that seems to me that's come out from our, from our other interviews is this resilience. You've got to learn resilience. You've got to deal with the setbacks and accept that, you know, you've got to kiss a lot of frogs. And some people who've grown up in an environment where they're given lots of confidence and they're given lots of support get used to the idea of not always winning. Others, where they're more fragile, find the knockbacks really quite difficult to deal with and after a few knockbacks they think well it's not for me you know the system's telling me something but it's not for me how important is it not to be defined by the knockbacks not to be defined by your failures but to be de- but well i can't going. tell you i mean i yeah i can't tell you i mean it's hugely important i was knocked back so many times <laughs> just so many times huge errors <laughs> politics particularly can be incredibly bruising very public so resilience is important uh, and the truth is not everyone's going to have it's, not everyone's going to be able to have that and find that and in the end have that inner self-belief and that that cause you know I said that I think I touched on that you know I had a very strong ambition a very strong sense of mission and I've never been blown off that um never been blown off that mission just and and there's been so so much noise and attempts to blow me off it but it's been quite constant so for me and has served me incredibly well I would say on just on that point I have seen people turn back just as they were about to hit the mountaintop 
and it's yep. always tragic when that happens because they can't it, it's cloudy at the top you can't quite see the peak is there so the other thing i would say is i learned to sort of slightly stay in your lane notwithstanding what i was saying about finding your kind of metier finding your area of law and pushing for that slightly i found that as a, as a certainly as a politician that, you know, in the end, the issues that have come to define my 20 years in public life, I hope I'll get a bit more, um, have never moved very much. I I'm strongly associated with justice issues, which is probably one of the reasons I'm now um, Shadow Justice Secretary, strongly associated with social justice, race and education. I haven't, there are lots of fantastic issues in, polic in, in politics, foreign policy, defence policy, social welfare and benefits, housing, huge big areas. And I've got views on those areas, but I, but I sort of stayed in my lane and, and developed specialism, developed a voice that's authoritative, and that has served me well. And I found that is assisted to some extent my resilience, because of course, if you that generalist bit can get rather wearing, you know, uh, if you're looking across quite a lot of lot of canvases. The message to young people is build your expertise. Yeah. Find your area, learn the language, learn the law, build your expertise, build your networks, yeah. and keep going. Yeah. Don't give um, up. Don't give up. <laughs> Yeah. Finally, David. Law is definitely, unlike a lot, you know, it really favours longevity. Uh, financially, experience, uh, law hugely rewards staying in your lane. <laughs> Just and, across. and young lawyers have to learn that, yeah. that, you know, in every case, there are four or five parties, two parties at least, and one of them loses. Yeah. And the lawyers that lose dust themselves down and they move on to the next case. That's right, that's right, that's right. Um, <laughs> your Secretary of State, Shadow Secretary of State for Justice, what in structural terms do you think should be to change so that those with talent and no legal background have the best chance to make it as lawyers in the coming generation? Look, I'm keen on targets. I'm keen on the profession having a clear eye on who is in law school, and how that is reflected in the training contracts, the pupillages that are being handed out, and how that's then reflected through the organization. I'm also very keen on, on the idea of a journey traveled. So law can be a bit small c conservative. It can have a very, very conservative idea of what legal talent is. And that stems from a country that, you know, preferences private schools, preferences grammar schools, preferences kids that did the seven plus, the 11 plus and moved through the system and go to Oxbridge, unfortunately. Whereas the journey traveled is that young working class child in Sunderland who's got a caring responsibility, but is so talented. And, and my God, when they interview, they may not interview quite like young Hugo who got uh, three A stars and went to Eton. But if you really understand what you're looking for and what raw talent is, my God, they're able. And I think we've got to get better at that journey travelled story so that we get breadth, more breadth and diversity. It's better for clients, actually, when you've got that um, um, in a room. And I obviously we're some way off that because it's still the case that if you look at our senior judges, 
you look at their backgrounds, you don't see that breadth in the system that you're now seeing and you do see in other common law jurisdictions. You know, I was in New Zealand on my review into the criminal justice system and I was impressed at indigenous New Zealanders making their way into the top of the, the legal profession. And so I think that, that there's more to do on, on, on structuring a, a system that, that is that is not mitigating against talent and is, is slightly more, has more breadth when it's trying to work out who is talented and who's got the ability. And, and more forgiving, I think, more forgiving of working class students, whatever their background, let me just be clear, whatever the color of their skin, but working class students, you know, being able to make their, their, their mistakes, because you do in law, in a safe environment. And I think that for younger people, particularly living in a social media age as well, uh, an age of the selfie, an age of the rising narcissism index, uh, almost the notion of a safe environment, of private, protected environment in which you have mentors you can cock up but do well and they'll support you when you move on. It's getting rather lost, David, and I, I simply, I'm so grateful, it makes me rather emotional for people like yourself and others, who kind of you know can be protective of you can can use their professional patronage to support people uh, coming from non-traditional backgrounds to advance and do well and because they're still vouching for that person hugely grateful for Cherie Blair by the way uh, who did that a lot in my career because she's still determined to stand by those original judgment here I am 20 years later, really in my mojo. Um, <laughs> and clearly, you know, uh, in that place you want to be in politics where you're, where you're among equals and your ability and perspective is not being questioned because you've been in the business for 20 years, but you do need that early patronage. And it can't, that's not just for a year or two. That's, got to, that's certainly got to be there in the first five, six years uh, of, of your career. So just putting the threads of that, we've got to get as lawyers, we've got to get better at spotting potential, not just what people have achieved to date. We've got to value soft skills and we've got to value experiences like uh, we, we interviewed this incredibly great, really good young lawyer who said, hey, I'm, I learned most of my client skills by serving at my dad's restaurant. <laughs> you know, so he didn't do the, the he didn't do the the kind of you know all the the, the stuff at the weekends or all the summer schemes because he had to work in his dad's restaurant, but he has the ability to deal with people, and he now uses that as a lawyer. And I think as lawyers we just have to learn, as as more senior lawyers we have to learn that these are really really useful skills. And actually, people skills are crucial to making the, the legal business work properly. Um, whether you're a judge, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a sister, a barrister, anywhere in the system. David, I wish you well in your efforts. Thank you for sparing the time to talk to us today. I'm sure that what you said will be enormously useful for anyone listening who's thinking of a career in law. All power to your elbow. Thanks Thank you so much, David. It's been, it's been great. Thank you.